Hello, poets, lyricists, rhymers, and word lovers. I'm Grant Faulkner, a sometimes frustrated poet, but a lover of poetry. And I'm here with my mellifluously inclined co-host, Brooke Warner. And guess what, Brooke? It's National Poetry Month. Happy National Poetry Month, Grant. I know you're a lover of poetry and a lover of months dedicated to a writing form. So what are you doing for National Poetry Month? Yeah, I do love months that invite you to focus on a single activity such as National Novel Writing Month as well. Um, (laughs) And I hadn't, you know, initially planned this, but one of my reading goals for this year is to read The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot because it's now 100 years old. Uh, But I don't want to only read it. I really want to study it. So I actually bought this super snazzy Wasteland app that has recordings of Eliot and others reading the poem and then all kinds of commentary. And I've actually been listening to it on my dog walks. And isn't that crazy that there's a Wasteland app? It's amazing to me. But it's really cool. I would I can't recommend it enough to the lovers of the wasteland. <laughs> and I figured that the wasteland is one of the, America's most important poems, but I don't truly know it. And I, I remember the poem being assigned in my high school English class, and I was utterly dumbfounded by it. And to make matters worse, my teacher made no attempt at guiding us through it. We just had to, to read it cold. And it's not a poem to just drop someone into, even as a supposedly sophisticated adult reader. So I'm hoping that by spending a month on it, I'll not only know it well, but learn a few things about life and writing. So I'm curious, Brooke, do you celebrate National Poetry Month? And if so, in any formal way? I don't, but I'm totally stealing that idea. I was so intrigued just listening to you talk about it. I'm like, I need to do that as well. I know of that poem and have literally never read it. So there's something, uh, you know, and so clearly I'm aware of National Poetry Month every time it comes around in April. And I like it a lot more than other kinds of months. I love months that revolve around writing, but I was just grousing recently about March being Women's History Month and February being Black History Month, just because I feel like there's this ongoing cultural effort to shove everything into a space so that we can talk about it and honor things in a way that can sometimes feel a little manufactured. But I, I do feel a lot more open to honoring a genre. And I think that Poetry Month feels much more like a celebration as opposed to what I'm objecting to with the history months, which can take on a flavor of marginalizing sometimes. And I especially love the writing months because I know that the schools will focus on that, you know, so the they'll have a poetry unit in April. And James's sixth grade class has been doing stuff leading up to poetry month and had a spoken word competition at the middle school. So it seems super important to me that we celebrate poetry especially because it's a form that's foundational to every single other form, and yet it often doesn't get its due. Uh, But tell me, Grant, I mean, you just said what you're going to be doing for National Poetry Month, but what does NaNoWriMo do? NaNoWriMo doesn't do anything formal per se, but we do have Camp NaNoWriMo that happens every April, and it's a much more casual version of NaNoWriMo. It's not focused on writing a novel. So a lot of people actually do uh, write a poem a day in April. And I think that's a really great way to to celebrate National Poetry Month. And that's what's great about poetry is it's, it's a length of writing that you can write a poem a day. And I put this out there every April, but, but I wrote a piece years ago for National Poetry Month about why poetry is good for prose writers. And if you want to do a search, it's on the NaNoWriMo blog. So if you Google my name and why poetry is good for prose writers, you'll find it. But I thought I'd mention just a few reasons that I turned to poetry. And I think perhaps the most important thing for me is how poetry helps me understand how words create a mood, words and spaces, actually. And you know how many poems I 
think of them almost like incantations or prayers in the way they use techniques such as repetition and alliteration to establish atmosphere. Similarly, poetry is focused on mystery because its language relies so much on nuance and on the elusive gaps of life rather than on the connections that so much prose is dedicated to. And also as a writer who feels deficient in capturing detail, reading and writing poetry helps me notice the minutia of the world and to capture it in words. And poets delight in specificity. In fact, you might say that some poems' narrative tension is formed around the drama of minutia. You know, it really forces the reader to part phrases as if reading through a microscope. And then finally, since I love brevity per my new book, The Art of Brevity, I like poetry because it's a craft of compression and distillation. Poems don't have many pages to make a point with, so their narratives tend to move through fragments rather than exposition. And I, I love reading K. Ryan's miniatures or Basho's haikus. And then I love poetry because it invites a playfulness with language, you know, it invites experimentation and attention to language and, and a bunch more, of course. Yeah, that's so fun. And this week is a pub date of a special friend of mine, Mark Nepo. So I just wanted to also give a shout out because he has just put out a, a compilation, which is two decades of his poetry into a three volume collection called The Half-Life of Angels. Uh, and it's being, as I said, released this week for National Poetry Month. And my favorite thing about poetry is how collections are often developed around a single theme or topic. And Mark does this beautifully with each of his three collections, each one having its own themes. And then those themes cross-sectioning with one another in a cool way. And that leads us to today's theme, because we're going to get into this with today's guest, Heather Burbo. And I think one advantage of a themed collection is that often people will read just a single poem in isolation. But a theme collection puts the poem in conversation with other poems. So as a reader, you're more likely to read the whole book of poems and experience a bigness as you might with a novel or a collection of stories. And that's one thing I certainly love. And sometimes those themes can take the form of a type of memoir, as was the case with Victoria Ching's Obit, uh, which was long listed for the 2020 National Book Award in Poetry. And I found it interesting because she wrote it after her parents died unexpectedly. She distilled her grief during two feverish weeks by writing scores of poetic obituaries for all she lost in the world. And she essentially reinvented the form of newspaper obituary to both name what has died, things like civility, voicemail, appetite, the future, mother's blue dress, and then the cultural impact of death on the living. So just lots to get into when we think about poetry collections. Yeah, Obit is one of my favorite collections um, of the last few years. And coincidentally, on, on the subject of themed poetry collections, um, I was recently at a writing conference, AWP, and I met Adam O. Davis randomly, but he had just written or published an index of haunted houses, which is another type of themed collection. It's similar to Chang's in that it's about ghosts and absences, and, and those ghosts take the form of, you know, personal, political, mythic, lyrical, and yet very real things. Um, and unlike chapters in a novel, which propel the reader forward, each poem kind of demands its own uh, island of time and concentration. Uh, you know, the reader moves from slowly from one intensity of experience to another. And just to read a couple of my favorite lines, um, he writes, time is the colony that farms are ruin and that's from the poem a house unfit even for ghosts and later on to end the poem pacific americana he writes forgive us history we orphan everything we touch i think he writes so so beautifully and there's even a haunted houses hotline number where you can experience <laughs> some of the ghosts in the poem so if you want to call i think you can find this on his website but just call 619 
619-329-5757. Once again, 619-329-5757. And you'll be led through this whole phone tree uh, that will uh, kind of explore some of those haunted houses. And sometimes themes, I should just mention, they can they can group short stories as well in really interesting ways. The book Severance by Robert Olin Butler depicts the final thoughts of people as they are losing their heads in a guillotine. <laughs> and supposedly your brain keeps working gruesome. for 90 seconds or so. So each story is about 250 words long. Yeah, a little bit gruesome, but, uh, you know, really interesting. Yeah, well, this is where we get to the death portion of the show, because death is a subject so many poets have contemplated and mused on over the millennia. Of course, Heather has two collections that include death, but in a different way. I was so taken by Some Days the Bird, which consists of these beautiful poems between Heather and Anne Casey that they wrote together during the pandemic, or they rather wrote to each other. So we're going to talk about that a little bit in her interview. And it's almost like a collection of letters, except that they're writing to each other for from confinement uh, and opening up a world of life as they encounter the threat of death. And then Monarch is so inventive because Heather explores histories of the American West that are either overlooked or forgotten. Uh, And in that one, she's crafting a regional history of events that shaped California, Oregon, Nevada, and Washington. So lots to get into there. Both books are two of my favorite poetry collections of the year, just in case anyone is interested in buying a poetry collection for National Poetry Month. We will talk more with Heather after this short break. Welcome back, everyone. I'm thrilled to introduce Heather Bourbeau, our guest today. Heather Bourbeau's poetry and fiction have appeared in 100 Word Story, which I happen to know about, uh, Alaska Quarterly Review, the Kenyon Review, Meridian, and the Stockholm Review of Literature. She has twice been nominated for Pushcart Prize. Her collection, Some Days the Bird, is a poetry conversation with the Irish-Australian poet Anne Casey. We're going to talk about that today. And her latest collection, Monarch, is a poetic memoir of overlooked histories from the U.S. West she was raised in. And we're going to talk about that as well. And Heather is uh, perhaps the rare poet who is also a journalist. um, And her work has appeared in The Economist, The Financial Times, Foreign Affairs, and Foreign Policy. She was a contributing writer to Not on Our Watch, The Mission to End Genocide in Darfur and Beyond with Don Cheadle, the actor, and John Prendergast. She has worked with various UN agencies, including the UN Peacekeeping Mission in Liberia and UNICEF Somalia. Welcome, Heather. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Heather, I thought we'd touch first on Some Days the Bird, uh, which is, per your bio, a poetry conversation with Anne Casey. And it's it's really interesting to me because it's like a series of letters to Anne, who lives in Australia, and it spans 52 poems over 52 weeks. And I thought it was interesting to experience this dialogue from one of the, the few events in our lifetimes that brought us together and yet separated us, the pandemic. And when I think of the poems in the collection, I'm struck by how they're both contained and expansive and how they, you know, they travel through lockdowns and exile from family and through devastating floods and fires and wild winds and superstorms. So I was wondering if you could tell us how this collaboration came to be and if it was planned to be a book from the beginning or if it just grew into a book. Yeah. Well, we certainly didn't know what 2021 was going to bring when we agreed to do it. But yes, it was planned as a book, as a collection from the beginning. It was inspired because back in 2016, I want to say, I was at um, the Writers' Conference, AWP, and came across this very small chapbook written by Ross Gay and Amy Nezukumotatl that's called Lace and Pyrite. 
And in it, they have a little over a dozen poems that they wrote back and forth to each other from the point of view of their gardens. And I was always just very taken. I find this, you know, very small chapbook just beautiful. And yeah, I don't know how else to describe it. It's just really stunning. And I had it in the back of my head for a long time that I would like to do that on a bigger scale. And then Anne and I were booked for reading. Coincidentally, we didn't know each other. And we were booked for a reading when I was in Sydney back in February of 2020, right before lockdown. And we just really felt like kindred spirits when we heard each other's poetry. And a little while later, I proposed to her. I said, you know, I think it would be really interesting to do this project with you, especially since we're in opposing seasons. And we have similar approaches to nature and political and personal and weaving those together. And she was up for it. Thank goodness. And and there's the result. <laughs> it's, it's such a great concept. And I love that duality of the opposing seasons. And when Grant also mentioned the dual themes of containment and expansiveness, I was thinking about the way the collection is literally rooted in your gardens, as you said, and the poems are often about a single place, yet that single place becomes magnified and rich with attention and detail and language. So can you tell us more about the role of the gardens in this collection? Oh my God. Well, again, 2021, <laughs> we we really had no concept of what was going to happen. And we thought, you know, optim- we were optimistic when we agreed to do this in, you know, the later part of 2020, that things would be <laughs> different in terms of COVID by then. And so for me, I live uh, alone and I was helping care for my father So very COVID conscious, which meant I wasn't having a lot of physical contact with people. I was seeing people, but, you know, distanced and masked. And having the focus on my garden and sharing that every week with Anne, I really think that saved my sanity because I am, I'm a social introvert. I am an, an introvert like most writers, but I am a social introvert. And so it was, it was very difficult for me. And just being able to witness small moments of magic in my garden with real meditative intention, it, it really saved my sense. And then to be able to share it with somebody and have them share that joy with me and, and do it on their end as well. It was just I highly recommend it as a mental health exercise for everyone. Uh, You know, on that note, you know, it was an exchange and a collaboration and and a call and response in its way. And I'm curious how you as writer, knowing that you had this other person and reader and responder influenced your writing, because you did have a built-in audience uh, to the degree that it seemed like you were just writing for one another in some ways. Like when I read the poems, they're very intimate in that sense that you're almost sending letters to one another. And I'm curious what surprises you encountered along the way and what new places the collaboration led you. Yeah, well, they were truly letters. We sent not just emails to each other with the poems um, each week, but we also wrote them down as physical letters and sent them to each other. And those letters ultimately this summer will be part of the the Trinity College in Dublin's collection for Irish poets that they have. They have a collection with Anne's work 
and her personal exchanges. And that's going to, those letters are going to be part of that collection. So for me, in terms of how it impacted my, my writing, the first drafts of some of these definitely are using the second person because they were in response to things that I knew were happening in her life or personal details that she was more privy to than maybe the average reader would be. <laughs> so the first versions, which you'll be able to see at the university's <laughs> collection, because they're in hard copy form, were slightly more personal because of that exchange. I think that having her responses and seeing how she was weaving everything and the conversations we would have as a result of, of her work or my work, I think pushed me to be more ambitious with my poetry, especially having to write a poem every other week that I knew was going to be public <laughs> in, in some form. It really pushed me beyond my comfort. And I think as a result, I had better writing than I might otherwise have had. That makes so much sense to me too. Yeah, it's a great exchange. And uh, to flip to speak for a moment about Moving to Monarch, your collection about forgotten and overlooked stories of the West, you've organized that collection by state and each section begins with a timeline and then ends with a list poem. So why did you decide to use that as an organizing principle? Well, that one was also very tangentially inspired by this wonderful piece of literature it was beyond genre that Sean Wen, uh, S-H-A-W-N-W-E-N, did uh, called 20 Minutes of Silence Followed by Applause, Sarah Band Books, which is about Marcel Marceau. And it... <laughs> I was never a fan of miming or Marceau until this book. And it, it has a lot of different approaches. It has lists, it has personal, it has journalism. It, it's just, just a beautiful book. And I thought, oh, you know, I really enjoyed that book because it, it helped me enter into something that maybe was going to be a bit difficult for me to enter into otherwise. Um, or maybe not difficult, but something I might not have been interested in entering into otherwise. And then I just thoroughly enjoyed it. And so I just always kept that sense of like playing with genre in the back of my head and, or not genre, but form. And so I really wanted to have, I knew I wanted to have list poems at the end. And as I was starting to do a poem about the Salmon River I realized really the better way to do it was just lay out the timeline because the timeline speaks way more than a poem I think could capture it. And then I realized every state had one of those things that was just so expansive. It deserved to have just a, yeah, a more straightforward timeline started. 
Well, it's fascinating to mingle history and poetry. You know, it's just a very different reading experience. And in uncovering these histories, you also speak to biases and missing information and missing points of view, so that those elements become their own type of craft elements in a sense. And I was wondering if you could read a poem that speaks to those techniques and explain the process of unearthing the story and how do you, you decided to write the poem that way. Sure. I'm going to read After the Gold Rush. Riparian corridors wended to silty loam, heavy clay soils, alakai salts, delta dreams ebbed and flowed, Chinese forced to leave, Japanese streamed in, railroads, mines, and farms, rice imported from Asia, South America. Where the Maidu tended oak for acorns, gathered greens and berries, Kenju Ikuta showed the possibility of grain from hard-pan soil, black adobe. Profit and praise, rice became the new gold. One year later, Japanese could not own farms. In 1920, the Committee on Immigration and Naturalization read a pamphlet by Chester Verstig. California, he wrote, owed a debt to the Japanese, called Ikuta a pioneer. But they were not, he argued, entitled to have land, be citizens. In World War II, rice plantings delayed, fields foul with weeds, Issei, Nisei, and Sansei were gathered and interned, became field hands for government farms, potatoes and daikon, grains and hay, sold on open markets. 1964, rice production at record highs, 24 years before reparations, the U.S. Board on Geographic Names designated a summit that overlooks Manzanar, 20 miles to the east, Mount Verstig. When I was young, I grew near the remnants of Japantown, was told of Manzanar and Tule Lake by neighbors, fathers of friends. When I was young, my seasons were marked by rice. Spring meant flooding, planted wetlands. Fall, the burn after harvests. So that one started because I did grow up knowing about the internment camps. Um, we had friends of Japanese descent, both in Reno and in Sacramento, where I grew up between the two. And I remember being in high school uh, when the reparations were being discussed and surprised that so many of my classmates did not know about the internment. And so I, I knew I wanted to talk about that somehow, but I also wanted to talk about, and I didn't realize that the two would overlap. And I wanted to talk about rice as well, because it's such an important part of California's economy and history. And it only became clear in researching the rice that there was overlap. I mean, I 
there's a 21 page bibliography for this book <laughs> in in doing the deep dive into the history of of rice and um kenju ikuda i came across these pieces of information that were collected by the Committee on Immigration and Naturalization, and among them, the Chester Versteeg. And like then that led me down a rabbit hole, <laughs> finding out more about him and who he was. And it uh, turns out he was a lawyer in Southern California and very active in the Sierra Club chapter there. And they, the Sierra Club petitioned to have the mountain named after him. And it coincidentally overlooks Manzanar. And I just, you know, the layers of hideousness, I just couldn't ignore. And um, so in the end, these two came together without me realizing they were going to come together. Well, the poetry book is a rare one because you also made a teaching guide for the book. And so can you tell us more about that guide, who the guide is for? I mean, the you said it's a bibliography, so a, a reading list of sorts, if the readers can get the guide, if they're not teachers, I guess. And that seems like it would be a good thing for poetry, Western history readers. <laughs> yeah. Both the teaching guide and the bibliography are available at Cornerstone Press. If you look under the books section um, and you find Monarch, there are links to two PDFs. The teaching guide, I wanted it to be created for late high school, early college, but really anybody, um, because I really want to encourage critical thinking about the history that we're taught. And that includes this book. I definitely come with my own perspectives, and I encourage people to question it. (laughs) So I take the example of the Tacoma Method, which is one of the poems in the Washington section, and I want people to see some of the contemporaneous reports from that time of the events that I talk about, and think about whose voices aren't represented, whose voices are what is the agenda of the people writing, if we know that, and then to translate that into modern times, because unfortunately, it's involving anti-Asian sentiment, and that is still very much happening today. So being able to see that history is, is always written with a point of view. And again, that includes these poems. And so what point of view am I missing? What are my biases? Um, if you, you know, I, I just want people to to question these things. That's a great way, especially for late teens, late high school students, I think, to enter into history, I guess, is through you as narrator, but also questioning the position of you as narrator and and reading the history and also being able to question that. And so, you know, I was thinking uh, while you were saying that, you know, poetry books, one rarely thinks of research going along with poetry. And you mentioned, you know, how much research went into this, obviously, with your bibliography and your teaching guide. And it is like its own history book, after all. And and this will be like kind of the closing question, if you could give us a sense of, of how you're being a journalist um, kind of opened up the style of writing and the content behind it. Well, I love a good research as a as a journalist and researcher, but also just for my, I'm a very curious person. 
And so I like to go deep into subjects that I come across. I think because of being a, a journalist and a journalist generally on very tight deadline through my career, I am very accustomed to engaging with large amounts of information and distilling it into very short pieces that hopefully convey the larger concepts. So I think The Economist was very good training for me because, you know, these articles would take a week at least of research and interviews, and they would get distilled down to 500 words. (laughs) And um, so I think that that was very good training for what I didn't realize was going to be my future in terms of these historical poems. Well, thank you for joining us, Heather, and happy National Poetry Month. Thank you. You too. Thanks so much, Heather. Really great to talk with you. Same. Thank you. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. Well, it seems appropriate to celebrate our poetry episode and to to ring in National Poetry Month with some themes and trends in the poetry space. And I'd like to turn readers on to a great resource, poetrybolton.com. And this resource is put out by Emily Stoddard, a writer in Michigan who shares on her site that the Poetry Bulletin was seeded in the process of publishing her first book, Divination with a Human Heart Attached. I love that title. And the site is a godsend to poetry writers because it tracks 175 plus poetry book contests and open reading periods that includes data on fee waivers, prizes, and more. And so our listeners who are interested to know what kinds of submissions opportunities might be out there should go sign up for Poetry Bulletin's newsletter. I'm going to. And, and the site has also been updated as of this year with some new trends and data in poetry. So that's where we're going to focus today with much thanks to Emily Stoddard, who we hope will get some newsletter subscribers as a result of this shout out for all her hard work. Yeah, I mean, sites and resources like these are invaluable, and she's done all the work. So I would love to have this kind of resource for every single genre, because writers are always wondering where to submit, and then to have it all laid out for you and the fees and submissions. And I also love the goal of the site, which is to support poets who face barriers of time, access, or energy. I was like, okay, definitely feeling that. (laughs) Uh, You know, and again, I, I read that and was just like, Where's the counterpart for every genre? It's so generous. Uh, And Grant, one thing I was drawn to on the bulletin is how Emily analyzes the data because she includes 183 listings for where you can submit your poetry. And then she shows that the average cost to submit is about $24. So I thought this was interesting math. She writes on the site, if you submit to every single listing, you would pay $3,152 for your part in the poetry ecosystem, her language. I think that's cool to think about it in that way. And it's the equivalent of buying 210 books at $15 each. So it seems important to say why it matters that poets and anyone for that matter should submit to have their work published or for prizes for that matter. Uh, And since you have a lit mag, I would say it's twofold. Would love to hear what you think. I mean, you stay afloat, I'm guessing, by having some of these small submission fees. And then for authors, they get much needed bylines for their resumes and also exposure. Uh, But am I missing anything else? Like what is the important thing? that writers who want to submit their work should know? Yeah, that is such a great question. And I I love uh, 
Emily's um, notion of a, of a writing ecosystem, because I think that's really the right way to put it. So this is an interesting subject. And in fact, it, it's it's a debate that's been going on for years, both submission fees and contest fees. So we, we could actually dedicate a trend to that. A lot of writers don't think lit mags should charge for submissions because they think they should have another monetization strategy or they should use the money from submission fees to pay authors for their work. And those are fair points, but there are other layers to consider, I think. And at Submittable, um, that's the submission system that most magazines use. Most mags, you know, they quickly reach the limit that their free account allows. So they either have to pay Submittable a subscription fee or set up a submission fee structure, which then Submittable takes a cut of. And in the case of 100 Word Story, none of us could afford to bankroll the journal. Uh, so we opted for the submission fee, but we chose the lowest fee possible, which I believe is $3. And we don't take any of that money for ourselves. It, it covers some of our costs, but not all of our costs. I'm still paying out of pocket for a lot of things, especially related to the website. You know, websites aren't free. They look free, but they're not free. <laughs> and uh, we, we all do this as a labor of love. And I, I wish we didn't have to charge submission fees, but those fees are less than what I used to pay pre-internet when I used to have to make copies of each story and then pay postage and include a cover letter and a self-addressed stamped envelope and stuff it in one big vanilla folder and mail it. And that was a lot of work. So I'm personally happy to pay the $3 fee. Um, and sometimes, you know, it might be $5. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's always a, a question of how much you want to invest in, in your story or how much you have to invest in your story. But to your point, Brooke, you know, Yes, publishing and getting bylines is essentially the payments. And then I'd say being part of that community of writers and that ecosystem that Emily's pointing out, I wish it was more open and I wish there were greater monetary rewards. But most of the journals I know are operating in a deficit just like us. So contests are another huge topic and maybe we should save that topic for another day. Um, but I'm curious what else Emily offers on her site. Yeah, let's tackle contests next time. Um, other things that I liked on Emily's site, really the data and the numbers, which is just helpful, and also the healthy dose of generosity, right? Re also reminding writers that it does go both ways. Like, I totally get the debate that you're talking about. I've, I've seen it play out. I've been a part of it. Uh, but once you start doing the work, like on our end, uh, as publishers of these journals, or we've taken submission fees to, you know, for anthology collections and things like that it's pretty clear that the person doing the publishing should get some sort of compensation just for, you know, like you said, all the admin fees. And then a lot of times, like with anthology submissions, the winners get paid, right? So the bulk of the money is pulled together to pay back out to the writers. And so there's really not anyone, you know, making bank on these kinds of things. And, you know, I think we can fall into a mentality of thinking that paying to submit isn't worth it, or you might feel resentful sometimes that you'd have to pay to get your work considered. But her point is that to do this goes into feeding visibility for your genre. And I really believe that too. And this idea of the rising tides lift all boats, which, you know, even if you don't win or even if you don't get published, other people are, and then you should and can try again. And I feel like it can be really easy, too easy, in fact, for writers to be toiling away on a given book project and then forget the value of trying to have these smaller works published in online or print journals. And those efforts go a really long way to the all-important work of building author platform. 
Yeah, definitely. And I, I think in addition to National Poetry Month, I'm going to recommend that we should have National Lit Mag Month. Maybe it's out there, but I don't know what it is. But I say that because it's a lot of work to, to run one of these journals. And, and there are so many wonderful publications out there. I just returned from the AWP conference in Seattle, where I talked to so many editors. And I was just wildly impressed by the array, the number and the quality and the creativity of the journals out there. So in celebration of National Poetry Month, maybe buy a lit journal and read the poetry in it. Uh, acquaint yourself with a new poet or two and in celebration of right-minded keep listening keep inviting your writing friends to listen with you we are deeply thankful for your listenership your writing and your support of the writing world 